gentle listener, I'm Michael, your host, and this is my definitely not imaginary guest, Ethan, and we're in a room with Scotch, and there's the title of this podcast. real. I'm real. (laughs) Stop. So he says. Stop Pinocchioing me. Pinocchio lighting me. Which comes from that famous movie where someone drives someone else insane by lighting Pinocchio dolls on fire and telling them they're not there. (laughs) That's so much simpler and darker than (laughs) any other explanation for that term. Well, the Pinocchio dolls aren't real, but they tell them that they're real. Uh, Yeah. Um, See, would a not real co-host have come up with that insane... Thing. I submit that I he mean, would not. If it came from my own brain, yeah, but it if, didn't. It depends on how how dark is my brain. You That's acted question. surprised. So, for all you listeners out there who are listening to me talk to myself, I'm not proving that I'm real anymore. <laughs> I'm done proving that I'm real to you. <laughs> you're pretty. You're objecting pretty loudly there about that. So. Listen, before I came down to do this, came downstairs to do this podcast, I told my wife, I'm going to do the thing with Michael. And she said, how often do you do the thing with Michael? (laughs) And I feel that that's relevant, but now I've forgotten how. (laughs) Oh, it's probably, probably is somewhere. I, I, somewhere in the, I told her 24 times a year. 24 times that's yeah that's about right yeah i mean that doesn't count specials wait does, yeah it does because specials no. still come out wait oh yeah yeah months. it does ha see pinocchio lighting okay, me again so. and i defeated you <laughs> do you know that you haven't said what show we are i i basically did in a roundabout way I'm Michael, you're Ethan, we're in a room with Scotch. Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. There, I said, are you happy? Yeah, I'm very happy, (laughs) and I appreciate your QED there. And definitely, (laughs) I am the foolish one. (laughs) At least you can admit it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so, okay. Uh, Once again, this is the Scotch we're drinking. It's the Glenrothes 12-year... Speyside single malt scotch whiskey in this very cuddleable bottle. Uh, um, it was very akin to Lucille Ball saying biddle but you got there. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you comparing me to Lucille Ball. Dang it! Um, <laughs> it was just more of a get, compliment get your wife. than I meant to give you. <laughs> I know, you never mean to compliment me that much, but I find him anyway. All right. Uh, hey, Karen. Uh, I don't, You probably don't want to be associated with whatever dumpster fire this is, but would you just, like, read this <laughs> script? Thank you. Thank you for reading this script. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or 
any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. It's always refreshing to hear her say those rules. (laughs) In exactly the same way every time it really gets us back on track. It's really just like... See? It's just... It's very centering. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very much so. <laughs> hi, hi, Karen. You just read the rules, so I don't know why you're looking at me this weirdly. <laughs> We're not used to all the audio physics of our house yet, and apparently she can hear me asking her to read the rules when I'm downstairs and she's upstairs. So there's that. Well, I would hope so, because otherwise, how does she come down and read I know, them? you're right. Yeah, that was that was a foolish thing to point out. Um. <laughs> Very foolish. But again, at least you can admit it. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm right. losing this episode, but I have the moral high ground, so I don't know how that works. There's, there's a system in there by which a person can win and also lose, I'm sure. Well, everyone loses on this podcast. That's like that's like the Ur rule. That's like the rule before there were any rules. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think, I think you're right. This this is just a loser's only podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, <laughs> we, wait, we haven't clinked glasses, so I can say we drink scotch and we talk about books, like... Yep. Uh, I mean, yeah. Also, All at right. some well, point... Well, I'm going to pour mine. At some point, I was going to say, uh, though this be method, yet there's madness in it. And now I'm going to pour mine. Very good. Man. I'm going to need a lot of scotch before I recover from this intro. <laughs> Well, schlank. Don't take any brass nickels. Is that a toast? <laughs> um, I think that's that's a rude thing that old men put on the tip space in their receipts. <laughs> yeah, I think the phrase I was looking for was "don't take any wooden nickels," but I'm. Yeah, but brass nickels. I mean, brass nickels would probably be bad because they're brass and not nickel. Right, I mean, they're probably still just as worthless. Exactly. But... So, I'm right. Um, 
But also, do they exist? So therefore, is the advice relevant at all? I mean, I know wooden nickels existed, but do they exist anymore? I had some when I was a kid. Did you? Yeah. For what? Breakfast? <laughs> no. Just Adam. But for what? <laughs> what did you did you use them for like video arcades from like 1937? No, we, like we had like like pinball machines a... where you had to reach your hands in and like bat a <laughs> ping pong ball across some paper mache uh, figures. I feel like I'm being interrogated right now. I don't know why. <laughs> making me very stressed. <laughs> well, that was my goal. <laughs> I just wanted you to experience what I had experienced ever since you said I was Pinocchio or whatever. <laughs> well, mission accomplished, I guess. <laughs> um, and that's the episode. Um, all right we're all done now okay wait no stop i do i okay i promise i won't interrogate you anymore what were wooden nickels for like where did you get them and why did you have them they were like toys we played with them i don't know really i'm not sure okay huh okay i guess i always assumed they they were like good i am pretty sure they're like coupons essentially oh I guess I always assumed that they were like some form of very bad counterfeit currency that people took 150 years ago because they were dumb, but your mm. thing makes more sense. Um, yeah, I, I don't think they're like the authentic, like old wooden nickels. Like, sure. just, I don't know. Um, let's see. They, they were wooden nickels based on wooden nickels? Right, right. Okay. They're, yeah. Okay, here, like... uh, this, this Google search is telling me that wooden nickels were used in the 1930s during the Great, Great Depression because of coins shortages. So, like, they, oh. they were, like, emergency currency. Okay. And that was, they were probably devalued very quickly, if not immediately, then. Right. That's why people would tell you not to take them. Right. Because it's like, no, that's gonna, that's not worth anything. Don't, don't do that. Right. Um, although right. I bet now if you found like an authentic one, it would be worth a lot. I'm 100% sure it would. But that's not what this podcast is about. This, this has podcast... been Time Suck with Dan <laughs> Cummins. <laughs> we are going to be discussing uh, the book The Orchardist by Amanda Coplin. We talked about it in the last episode and this is now part two. So if you didn't listen to part one, you should probably go back and do that. Although, I don't know, are we, is it, would, would anything really be ruined by listening to it out of order? I know we've kind of held to that in the past, but does it hurt to listen out of order between two episodes? Um, it hurts depending on how like painful it is for you to hear callbacks to things that you don't know what they're a callback to. That's true. Um, but... If In which case, instead of a callback, just treat it as foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's as simple as it gets. Yeah, um, so I don't know how we I'm, haven't I'm thought of that gonna, before. I'm not. I'm just gonna. I, you know what? If you're listening, welcome. There, I'm being friendly now. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, three and a half years into the podcast? <laughs> yep. Okay. Now I'm being a welcoming host. Okay. That appreciates the listeners. I haven't been until this very moment. <laughs> but Amanda Amanda Coplin has changed me. That's, that's I mean, what I'm going to attribute it to. Okay, if any novel could change you from Michael in 2016 and into a kind person, like... <laughs> I do think this novel could. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. That's 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 a very ah, fair point. And a real <laughs> solid burn. Let's not lose that. Okay, go on, Michael. Okay. Uh, I'm no see. I'm being kind. Um, <laughs> you're, you're providing me space to say my jerkwad thing. Exactly. And you look better. I, I, ah, dang it. <laughs> now who has the moral high ground? Oh. <laughs> Um, so enough about who's winning this episode um i did want to mention about this book um while it doesn't have a um reader's guide section yeah it does have an interview and like a brief essay by amanda coplin about um how the book began did you yes. read that oh i read all okay. of that um good and I, I okay i i will say i don't remember all of the interview and as we've sure. established i have just moved into a new home so my copy of the orchardist <laughs> is in one of literally dozens of packed book boxes right now um mm-hmm. but that said uh I, the, there was one question that I remember from the interview that was like intern writing a reader's guide level of dumb, but I think some of the other questions were good. So I don't want to like fully cast aspersions on that interview. Right. As far as interviews at the backs of books go, I felt like this was a, a fairly decent one. Yeah. Um, and I, there are a couple things that I want to discuss about it but like because of because you don't have the book i want to ask what you remember most about it and some key things you might want to discuss about it beforehand if the if anything otherwise i'll dive in well like i said i really only remember the one thing and it's the bad one which is when the interviewer asks something about like magic realism in this book (laughs) (laughs) and Amanda Coughlin, to her credit, and as I would expect nothing less from her, uh, is very gracious and like, no, no, yeah, she's really. like, no, that's not no. There's like, <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, like I, I think. My, my like, how do I put it? My most charitable take on that question, and I don't remember how the question is even phrased particularly, but is to remember myself both in undergraduate and even in grad school, like launching into, like occasionally getting to talk to an author of something I read for class and launching into a question not fully 
able to articulate the thing that I mean by the question. Um, mm -hmm. And then the author or uh, being asked the question sort of reacting like I was wrong. And um, then I, I remember, I can think of at least, I'm going to say at least three, and it probably happened more times than that incidents, where something like that happened and where I was like, yeah, well, okay, the words I said to ask the question were wrong, but I didn't mean the thing <laughs> you thought I meant. Um, sure, sure. And uh, it's... It's, uh, I could see this being that kind of question, especially if our, like, completely unproven theory that only interns in major publishing companies write these interviews and, and uh, uh, discussion mm -hmm. lists, um, and it is someone who's, like, 23, like I was in grad school, um, trying to articulate <laughs> some quality of the book that... It, it is obviously realism in the sense that this is a, a historical mm -hmm. novel. It's something that um, easily could have take, taken place within all of the sort of provable facts we know about real life. Um, but there is, there is some quality to it, and it maybe just comes from the orchard imagery um, or the uh, figure of Talmadge, this, this like large, silent mostly heroes slightly anti-hero or even the figure of Della um who is like larger than life in a way that in our literature traditionally only like male cowboys usually are um sure. uh, there's like it it is almost as if Amanda Coplin borrowed everything she could from magic realism without actually straying into that field in any way shape or form Sure. And I, I, I honestly did kind of get that impression too. like looking at the, the question about and it's 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 phrased in such a way that kind of hedges a good deal. Like would uh, where's the, the question? Would you agree that the reader might be struck? OK, I'm going to I'm going to emphasize some words here as I read sure. this. Would you agree that the reader might be struck by a slight sense of magical realism wafting about the places and people in your novel? So okay. it hedges a good deal yeah, so that's on as, that. That like that's as like is hedgy there a, is as there that a, question uh, could just, be. Did did you take magical realism and reduce it down and then boil it and then take the smoke and just <laughs> blow a little bit of that smoke over the book? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is actually now that now that you like remind me of the specific phrasing of that question, a much less unfair question. Sure, and again, as you say, I think Amanda Coplin was extremely gracious in her response too, where she says magical realism is stretching it a bit, I think, but I'm intrigued by your observation. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like, um, hey, I'll I'll entertain the question, even though I think it's wrong. <laughs> right. Um. <laughs> Uh, but okay, yeah, no, and and I I think you're right about that. That um, it, like you said, especially with the orchard, just and and it, the the question asks that too about the places, um, as well as the people that like. There's yeah. maybe this sense of something, um, broader. I don't know, but yeah, um, a couple other things I wanted to to touch on with this. 
do you remember how this book began, according to Amanda Coplin? Uh, no, not specifically. I remember her addressing it. It began as a short story. Oh, yes. Because she was studying to be a short story writer uh, at the University of Minnesota. Um, when this idea came to her, and she went through like a few drafts where she tried to make it a short story, but realized no, it's not. It's not something that would fit into a short story. It's and it's it's not the the story that a short story would be able to tell. It's the story that a novel would be able to tell. Yeah. Um, That's interesting to me and, because it does. Yeah. Uh, I had forgotten all about that to be honest, but I do remember the mm. experience of reading it being. Uh, like that that fits into my experience of reading it in the sense that um, sure. I remember getting to page like maybe 75 and being like she's she's done so much already like I'm on page mm-hmm. 75 and I've already a I'm already emotionally devastated in a way that like very few books since the last time I read Till We Have Faces has done by page 75. Um, <laughs> and second, uh-huh. secondly, I'm like, I feel like I've gone through several different characters' complete emotional arcs already. Like, where could we possibly go from here? Like, I'm on board. I, I'm grateful that this book is, mm-hmm. whatever, 300 more pages or whatever, but like, it, it felt like in in a way that that uh till we have faces getting to page 75 and having um uh i forget her name have that epiphany about um beauty and, and yearning mm-hmm. like that could be a complete arc um oh there's, yeah there's there's like several points in the orchardist that could be like that um Mm-hmm. And I think they happen more towards the beginning than towards the end, and it's tempting, at least, to attribute that to Amanda Coplin figuring out that this is not a short story or even a novella, but a complete book. So the mm-hmm. the back half is much more sort of drawn out in its in its telling or in its goals. But well, the way the way she tells it, um, she had it started with this like image. Um, it was, it was a scene, um, with this small girl clinging to the, the pant leg of an old man standing in an orchard. That was, that was the image that she had, that that was the story. But then, like, as she thought about it some more, um, she realized something was missing and then, like, that came up and she says, and then there she was slipping through the trees, a young woman in men's clothing, a cowboy that pulled low... A cowboy hat pulled low over her brow, uh, likewise quiet but full of rage, um, and says she hung about, not able to get close, but watching from afar. So, and and that's really where we kind of get like that's that's the bulk of the story in the last two thirds, three quarters of the book. Yeah, um, it starts with the story of uh, Talmadge and Della and Jane, I think. Yes, the, yep. the other yeah. one. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, a- and then Jane dies when Mickelson comes, and 
then it's Talmadge and Della, and then Talmadge and Della and um, uh, Angeline, and it it grows from there as Della drifts farther and farther away until we get to the point where that image applies, mm. um, and then the rest of the story is about them. So with that whole short story beginning you could cut out a bunch of the beginning and a bunch of the end and that's where the short story is somewhere in there um but she had to fill in all these other details but like you say it's all this stuff it's not just details it's complete story arcs um or character arcs emotional character arcs going on um like you've got all this antecedent action that fills in and then the story as it goes becomes antecedent action to the rest right. of the story. I don't know if that sentence made any sense whatsoever. It but <laughs> um, But yeah, no, I thought that was really fascinating. And like you say, the depth of the writing really does speak to a short story format. Because with a short story, you really do have to pay attention to word choice a lot. Yeah. Um, not that with a novel you don't, but you you have a lot less real estate in a short right. story. And so if she's writing in the style of a short story writer for an entire novel, A, how You're exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> and um, B, she succeeded, right. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I... There's obviously a density to it, and that may also uh, partially explain like some of the um, chapters that are so short. You you talked about uh, uh, last episode mm-hmm. with the idea that 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 builds in a silence even in the structure of the of the book. Um, mm-hmm. But when you're compressing what you have to say to the degree that you do in a short story sometimes you end up with just needing all, all you need in a chapter is um you know what you can say in three lines or a couple paragraphs mm-hmm. um i i yeah. uh, the the when i see chapters that are that short um i think of ray bradbury um uh mm. you know one of the great uh short story writers who wrote novels accidentally um and uh he i remember like one of his books specifically i think it's uh no it wasn't leviathan 99 it was the one that was packaged with that uh i wish i could say more things to cover for the fact that i'm googling this quick um (laughs) somewhere a band is playing is a is a about a hundred page novella that bradbury wrote um and it came out with with the novella leviathan 99 and between the two of them they reached like 220 pages which is all you needed to publish a ray bradbury novel in the year 2000 or whenever that 2007 according mm-hmm. to google um uh and and uh now and forever or uh somewhere a band is playing specifically was guilty of like you know new chapter uh 
three lines on on the page the rest of the page is blank new chapter after that um and i think that that is something that happened and, and bradbury of course he he has short stories that are famous as well as novels that are famous um but he uh probably he cut his teeth writing short stories and um mm. if you had to pick one or the other probably his short stories are still the more famous um thing that he did uh as in any any person in school in in high school or college who has read bradbury is more likely to have read um wow i cannot think of any actual short stories titles so i'm disproving my own point but um certain of the martian chronicles <laughs> that get packaged as short stories or the one where the guy time travels hmm. to the dinosaur era and steps on a butterfly and messes up all of history um or the one where the astronauts keep following jesus from planet to planet and just keep missing him by infinitesimal degrees um those are much more famous for bradbury than his uh novel length works especially at this point possibly unless you counter with fahrenheit 451 um but anyway the point being that amanda copland has managed to write like a 400 page novel in this really extremely compressed mode that works as a novel um which functionally is something that since i'm apparently choosing to belabor this bradbury comparison like that's something bradbury never managed to do i don't think he has that i know of any novels that are reach beyond like the 300 page mark in paperback yeah i think i think that's right yeah no but it, it so long story short here to to briefly make that whole point is amanda copland's writing is stunning um just by the sheer volume and labor of it um how she was able to do this much in the style of a short story that is still a novel that's yeah bonkers (laughs) um that's so that's that's yeah that's that's where i wanted to kind of focus with um the 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 end matter without actually talking about the book itself um but i mean it it ties back in so um that's uh, oh another thing that's that's where i wanted to to actually tie back into um the book itself when she talks in this little about the book essay thing um when she's talking about that that image she says it was grief that visited me in the form of this image and i knew that the novel was going to be about grief and also about the solace and the life of the orchard landscape um so what do you think about this novel being about grief um well this uh and I'm going to tie this into my own agenda um, because of why okay. would I not? Um, because the one thing I wanted to make sure we brought up in some form or another before we tied off this episode 
is the character of Della. Yeah. Um, and yes. what I would argue, and this is again sort of sort of like I did in a very different way last uh, last episode. This is something I would posit without necessarily trying to be dogmatic about it, um, in the sense that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have an assertion I want to make, but I don't necessarily want to say it's the only right way to read or interpret this book. Um, but the assertion is that this is actually a book about Della, that Della is the main character. Um, and mm. the main place I would go with that is, of course, back to Shakespeare. Um, in a... Sh- in a Shakespearean tragedy, um, you obviously have the figure of the tragic hero, uh, and I'm obviously saying this more for our audience than for you, Michael, um, but uh, the the tragic hero in pretty much every, at least every one of Shakespeare's sort of great tragedies, um, what what scene are they introduced in? That is not the first. That is the, probably the second. You, you, the, your first, <laughs> your first clause there was exactly what I was looking for. They're introduced in not the first scene. Um, of course, okay. Hamlet begins with the ghost, and uh, everyone in that scene is talking about Hamlet, maybe somewhat indirectly, but right. uh, uh, he is he is literally in the second scene. Um, in uh, Macbeth, of course. Uh, uh, you have, I think, multiple scenes where Macbeth is talked about before he hails on stage. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, Julius Caesar, um, which, of course, you could say is like a play about Brutus, but neither Caesar nor Brutus are in at least the first scene, if I remember right. Um, uh, Othello, of course, is opens with Othello's enemy talking to Othello's father-in-law about how Othello is, you know, sleeping with the father-in-law's daughter. Um, Mm -hmm. The the only exception maybe being Richard III, but then you have to get into whether Richard III is, in fact, a tragic hero or not. Um, And, yeah. Oh, man. Why why are you baiting me? Which... Um, (laughs) <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, um yeah okay so my point is if you want to say that Della is the main character um you could basically say that the introduction of Talmadge and Talmadge's whole background um is only leading up to is is only there or not only but is mainly there to lead up to this uh, angry cowboy-hatted girl, you know, striding through the orchard that Amanda Copland saw in her first vision. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And that uh, Della, or that the Talmadge, rather, and even Jane um, are just sort of ancillary characters to the arc of Della. Um and mm. wait, crap! What was the original question I was answering here? 
Um, grief. Yes, thank you. Okay, so, um, and again, and like, you could, you could, I, I might be more likely to argue that Della and Talmadge are like twin main characters, um, but either way that you want to, that you want to argue that, uh, Talmadge's grief, you know, begins when he's very young. Uh, he loses his mother mm-hmm. almost right away, in a sense, um, mm-hmm. both in his own life and in the, the uh, sequential existence of the story. Um, he very shortly after that loses his sister, and neither of those things um, are dwelt upon directly. And again, this is like uh, sort of the thing I described last episode about getting Gene Wolfe vibes. This is this is one of the places that I get those the most because um, the the events surrounding Talmadge's mother's death and his sister's disappearance um, they're refer they're they're described almost immediately. They're referred to a handful of other times. But I think they are not referred to nearly with the density that they drive every single one of Talmadge's thoughts and actions. Mm. Um, that, in other words, I think anytime, you know, and this could be an unfair argument by negatives, but I think anytime. Um, that Talmadge has an internal conflict and um, his mother or sister's deaths are not mentioned, that thinking about those deaths or disappearances, technically in the case of his sister, thinking about them would be a valid way to interpret what's going on with Talmadge in the given moment. Um, And... uh, there's, um, uh, like, and, and the same thing, like, if you're making Della the hero, you can say that this is all sort of setup or foreshadowing for Della's psyche, because um, you can, again, interpret all of Della's uh, thoughts and actions after um, the suicide slash attempted suicide in the tree, um... All of her thoughts and actions after that could go back to that moment. And there's one scene that spells that out very clearly, but um, again, I think if you interpreted literally any of her thoughts and actions through the filter of that moment, that uh, it would make sense. Again, it's not the only way to interpret those things, certainly, but um, I think it's a valid way to do so. Um, and, you know, those those two sort of sets of things are arguably the central lodestones of the plot of the novel. Sure. Um, so, and those, th- those, are, those are sort of the things I think of when I yeah. hear... Uh, uh, when I'm asked uh, what I think of this novel being about grief. Sure, sure. Uh, well, I want to thank you, first of all, but for uh, jumping into Shakespearean tragedy, because <laughs> I think that this novel is about grief in much the same way that Hamlet is about grief. Um, okay. Except they, they, they deal with it, bo- both Hamlet and The Orchardist deal with grief 
in masterful ways, but also in ways that only their specific genre can, by which I mean a play or a novel. Um, like, Hamlet would not be able to deal with grief the way this novel did. Sure. And this novel wouldn't really be able to deal with it the way Hamlet did. Both of them could, but you would have a much more subpar story in either sure. case. But in this case, the the way it works, uh, the, way, the way it winds up, like, like you say, and I'm going to make Nate angry a little bit by agreeing with you a lot here, um, that I think, um, yes, Della is one of if not the central characters um um talmage i think i think she is a a twin central character with talmage but that it even goes further into angeline um the only difference being that um when you look at character arcs i think della's is the most pronounced um angeline's arc is more of a just a growth um yeah because she's maturing and growing up talmage's is more just a a a milder sort of opening up um i think but della's is much much more pronounced than the than the other two and i think the reason for that is she's in the middle um and and they function to to give not not the stages of grief and i don't really even want to go into that like i i'm really tempted to talk about that like denial anger bargaining (laughs) depression acceptance but i mean especially seeing della being this character who's so full of anger um but i don't think that is anywhere in the intention there and it's it's really like faux psychology to talk about it too much in regards to to grief um it has some basis but not not as broadly as it's sometimes used but anyway um what i mean by that like they they fit in these stages not those stages but stages of grief in that talmage has this weighing on him and he has kind of come to an equilibrium where he can live um his life but like you say his decisions are still informed by that and it still does affect him it wouldn't have been brought up in the second chapter if it didn't um right and uh so with that that pushes him forward to to continue to try to rescue Della and Jane um and and it even pushes him to to consider options that would be morally questionable right um or just beyond um what what would be right really um and part of that is because those griefs are really unresolved griefs, especially his sisters. She just disappeared. There's right. no closure at all uh, for her. So that that grief can't be um, can't be resolved. Um, and so, okay, so there, there's that. And then um, with Della, uh, her grief is. On, on Jane, which also affects Talmadge, um, but then with that, it's also um, with her own experiences with Mickelson, um, and that that pushes her forward and especially roots her in that anger that it's it's unresolved, and so that drives her to rage because there's a potential that maybe I can resolve it if I fight hard enough to force it into a resolution. Right. Um, and then you get to Angeline, um, who has kind of secondhand this this grief about Jane 
but it's really it it's second hand because there there's this this unresolved silence about Jane with both Talmadge and Della, right. and she you know being curious wants to know what's all this about, you know, right, trying right. to learn all of this, but then it goes further because she's created this uh, or she's she's gotten into this relationship with with Della who then disappears, and she starts to lose that relationship as as she's gone for a long period of time um and so there there's there's a kind of a, a, again a a grief but with a step in the middle right in there um until ultimately <clears throat> ultimately comes to talmage when talmage dies that's her real central grief but she gets closure with it she gets to a place where she can really accept it and and move on even though she is still grieving about it and there is still that gaping hole in her because of that grief um she's come to peace with it she's come to terms with it right um and i think that's what the rest of the characters are striving towards throughout that talmage is is trying to find that real peace and he he puts up these these pretenders to peace along the way this the the silence is there because he doesn't have any other real peace right um in in himself and della seeks to get that peace by fighting to force it into place um but angeline ultimately comes to a place of not to put again these labels of of the stages of grief on it again but acceptance right um really Um, so that's why I think I think there there are these kind of stages, not exactly stages that as if everybody goes through them the same way, but they're different degrees and perspectives on grief in a similar way to to Hamlet again, that every decision he makes is because his grief over his father's death is unresolved. Right. Um, and that's like one of the major sort of things about grief is that, um in a sense in this like this is going to sound very flippant but it's it's sort of hard one out of out of dealings with grief i've grief that i've had in my own life is a sense that death is easier than some other forms of grief in the sense that Ah. death like something has happened and you either deal with it or you don't um and that's easier than you know your sister disappearing into the woods or right. um someone who loved you seeming to stop loving you um because mm-hmm. those those things don't have a final line marker to them uh right whereas whereas again dealing with a death is like it's it's hard and it's it's rough and it's tragic and you know depending on circumstances it can be uh, uh very tragic or whatever but like there's a hard out there that you you know in a sense has already happened um mm-hmm. and so definitely in a sense angeline gets not that it's an easy task but she gets the easiest task of the book um yeah whereas the the idea of dealing with grief and the thing that um probably drives both hamlet's and talmage's worst decisions 
um, is the fact mm-hmm. that if you're going to deal with a grief that isn't death, you have to find that place somehow. You have to find the uh, yeah um, the hard out, so to speak. Um, and I mean, and and I, I guess I sort of misspoke about Hamlet because uh, Hamlet proves, or at least asserts, that you can have that ongoing grief even when the the death has occurred. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know if we're saying that Angeline is ultimately a stronger person than Hamlet is, um, but, you know, there... I don't know if that's the comparison that needs to be no, made. No, I, I like, don't know. I, 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 it's not a question of strength. I, it, they're different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um but that that said, uh, I, I don't know. I, th- I think when you're dealing with grief, whether it is a death or not, you have to find the you have to find the end of it. Um, and yeah, you know, people people have like uh, there's there's a whole there's like a hipster Shakespeare critic thing, if that's a fair phrase to use. Um, to say that Hamlet okay. isn't a tragedy because in the end he gets what he wants. He gets to die. Um, oh, okay. But the count- one counter-argument to that is the fact that Hamlet arguably never resolves his grief, and that's his tragedy. Um, sure. I don't, Michael, having, having played Hamlet better than anyone I have seen personally. I don't know if you have other thoughts on, on that, especially in relation to the Orchardist, since this is not the Shakespeare podcast, but Sure. Well, I from an actor's perspective, I try to avoid labeling a character tragic or comic. Sure. Um simply because that character is experiencing reality. And so for Hamlet, yes, he has things he wants. And yes, he does get many of the things that he wants. But if I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to tangentially analyze that statement from my perspective. On sure. It. Um, kind of bouncing, skipping along like a rock. Um, the, <clears throat> I think it comes down to Hamlet learning what it is he wants and trying multiple things because he thinks those things are what he wants but he's continually discovering even as he is brilliantly exacting er, executing his his plans i think um I, i think he is like a very smart character one of the smartest characters i've ever played um but he's not smart enough for himself, sure. if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Um, and so I think as he's as he's discovering what he wants, he ultimately um, does realize in the end that he's not actually getting what he wants. He's getting what he at one time thought that he wants. Sure. But he is also moving forward thinking that if, Horatio can continue to speak then after he's gone 
what he wants will be accomplished. All right, now tie that back into the orchardist. The rest is silence. I was going to say Sorry. that. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, um, no, that's all right. No, like that's that's the well. I mean that that does kind of tie back into the orchardist. You know, Hamlet is at the end his his last line, his dying breath. The re- the rest is silence, and we've already oh. talked about how much this book is about yeah, silence. Yeah, that's fair. And, um, which I I think is very key that Hamlet is coming to a place of acceptance there. Sure. Um. And and that's that's what the silence ultimately gets to. I mean, the the silence is not what, what I said this last episode that silence is kind of its own character in this. Yeah. And what I mean by that, um is not is what i mean is that it accompanies various characters and places uh and sometimes appears on its own and it's also not two-dimensional silence is neither good nor bad sometimes it's both sometimes it's one or the other um it has shades depending on who it's with sure um and it and it shades those people depending on who it's with too um, and so when, when you say something like the rest is silence in, in Hamlet with, with this book, that's, I think where Talmadge really starts. He starts by trying to have that silence and to an extent it does work, sure. but it doesn't work. It, it really doesn't when there are other people, right? <laughs> um, like some of that is still going to be there, but you can't just leave it in silence. You can't leave everything in silence, especially when Angeline comes on the scene. She is continually fighting against his silence and asking right. his questions because she's a child. She's curious. And he's this quiet old man. He's, oh, come on, leave me alone, kid. I just want to tend these right. trees. Um, but it, it it causes the silence to itself grow and develop until with Angeline, it becomes something more meaningful itself um there was something and i wanted to to try to find it too that that ties into angeline and talmage's characters uh right at the end page 420 it's it's right before the last part and last chapter um angeline has gone out while talmage is on his deathbed and she's um walking through the orchard going along the creek or the river here um Page 419 at the bottom, it says, Then she reached for a walnut on the stem and entered a silence within the overarching silence and thought she could hear insects percolating in the grass. She heard them in all their privacy and intimate murmurings. So silence. Okay, first silence within the overarching silence. She's kind of reaching this um, enlightenment almost is is kind of how this is being depicted that she's she's in the silence within the silence she's behind what the real silence actually is and that's going to reveal more about what comes up next the sun on the porous bank near where she stood was lit up incandescent the minerals glittering and the dull mud peculiar and particular even in its dullness and here's where it's really going to get key the last two sentences each pore and streak and detail about the bank was washed and brought forth as is a person's face by the light when she returns to the cabin she discovered talmage had died um so while she's out there experiencing enlightenment 
and looking at this riverbank and seeing it as a face, really. I mean, it's not literally depicted as a face, but it's it's washed by the, the water and the water reveals the pores and the details. Yeah, it's a... Um, as light reveals a person's face, which you go right back exactly. to the beginning of Thank Talmadge you, yeah. in the book. He, he's got this these this pockmarked face, right? The pores that are that are clearly shown, um, and it, it it's a perfect. Oh, it's a beautiful, perfect bookend here that she is coming to this silence and this acceptance really before he even dies, mm-hmm. um, and that. That is the magnificent idea of this, that she finds this silence within the silence. She finds what the real value of silence is and where it really belongs. Yeah. Um, and and um, that helps her with her, her grief. Right. Um, it's not just silence for silence's sake. It's, it's a purposeful silence that really functions as the light or the water to reveal other things because you notice when she finds the silence within the silence she hears right. things um that's that's the the key sure. i think yeah i like that a lot um and i'm gonna introduce a new concept right here at the end because it wouldn't be this show if i didn't um, perfect true but, to form uh so I read The Orchardist and our next book, Shotgun Love Songs. Um, And then the book Mm. that I read immediately after that uh, was just a book called The Midwestern Novel by Nancy Bungie. Um, And it's a, you know, it's lit lit crit. It's it's straight up, you know, uh, dry lit crit. Um, But it's one of very few books analyzing any any set of novels as midwestern novels um that's a category that historically hasn't existed always um that uh uh you know a lot of what would be considered midwestern novels has been claimed by the south or the west um uh one of the things that she points out about midwestern novels is that is and so to be clear, obviously the Orchardist is set in the Northwest, right? So um, not what you right. consider the Midwest at all by any definition. But as I was reading her study, like things from the Orchardist kept striking me. And this is not the only one, um, but it's the only one I'm going to get to mention, at least here. Um, and uh, which is that one of the key characteristics of a Midwestern novel is a focus on nature. There's this very very vivid and very uh pronounced um affinity for the natural world um and of course two of what two of the people who are considered um america's great naturalists uh actually come from probably my home state of wisconsin uh aldo leopold and john moore m-u-i-r um and bungie compares the two of them Mm. right to Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, who were, of course, uh, sort of uh, New England writers who also had a heavy focus on nature. Um, but mm-hmm. the New England writers, she she says, she asserts, uh, have a very um, hierarchical view of what people can get out of nature. 
uh, which goes back to their obsession with Eastern religions and the idea of the enlightened person um, who has had to struggle and meditate and um, do all kinds of work and soul searching. And that she quotes, I think it's Thoreau, as saying, you know, one man in a million can actually open the book of nature. Um, whereas hmm. Leopold and Moore, these, these Midwestern writers, very much uh, tend to view nature as a form of, if you want to call it enlightenment, you can. Uh, they wouldn't mean the same thing that, you know, a Buddhist would by enlightenment, but um, right. But that it's available to everyone, including, say, a young girl dealing with uh, the death of her um, the only real father figure she's ever known. Um, and that's right. uh, this is this is maybe tangential to what you were what you were talking about, Michael, in this scene. But that's the other thing that just jumps out at me about this particular scene is that um, this is not sort of an elitist thing. This is not you know she didn't have to go away to go study abroad or go mm-hmm. to brilliant universities. This is just here for her when she needs it um and again you know i'm not i I don't necessarily want to have the fight about whether to claim this as a midwestern novel by some tangent but but that parallel and both of those she was studying at the university yeah when i when i got to the end and read that i was like oh okay yeah um because <laughs> again, if we did the secret third podcast about this book, like we do, what like we threaten to do about most of our books, um, I would talk about yep. what I think I can detect of a very midwestern sensibility in Amanda Copeland, um, which is something I just sure. love and adore in this book. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah. Uh, uh, so there, there definitely is, is that there? Like I say, I don't need to like have a territory dispute the way actual academics sometimes do and try to claim this novel for the Midwest. But I will, I'll do it. I just really loved and adored Monica, that parallel. Don't worry, okay, I got you. you do it, please, please do. Yep. Uh, All right. No, I you. mean honestly, I did kind of feel that way um, reading it. I, I don't always. I don't always look at the details of an author when I'm reading a book, especially if I haven't heard of that author before. Um, but if if there's an about the author section, I might maybe sure. about a third or halfway through peek at that and look at it. And so when I saw that she studied at the University of Minnesota, I was like, oh, she's sure. one of us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so yeah, she, yeah. I, I and I, I'm, I'm intrigued by, by that, um, that book, that book of criticism, um, midwestern novel. Um, I think, I think it's interesting, and, and that, that idea of nature, I think, is definitely key here as well as you know these, um, these characters are not any sort of elite, like you say, too. They're they're all pretty much common folk. <laughs> um, 
Like, you might make the argument for Talmadge that he being right. this massive landowner is right. is a little more elite, but that might be a stretch. Um, um, you could make that argument, like, economically or... I guess yeah, mainly economically. That's, that's like, I don't think you could make it sociologically ball, but... or psychologically. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ethan, we're coming up on, on time here. Yeah. Do you have any other new concepts to bring into discussion here? <laughs> no, and I would like to pat myself on the back for uh, sort of both launching that plane and landing it in under like 10 minutes. Yeah, no, that was, oh, thank you. That was good. That was good. Very good. Um, I all, uh, oh no 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 okay one the uh, one other what? thing I needed to say yeah is that uh, as okay probably all of the gentle listeners know at this point I assume on our Patreon page we have a category that's mostly a joke except we'll do it of a thousand dollars a month or more um, we'll write an essay for you um, and I based on mm-hmm. just the last like. 20 to 30 minutes of this episode i have to assume that if we wrote one on the orchardist it would be called the orchardist colon a novel about hamlet <laughs> yes oh man i'd write that essay oh right. that'd be great that'd be great um, all right, well, uh, we are at the end of the episode, and uh, once again, no one broke any rules, so no punishments right, need to be doled out uh, at this point. We'll see how yeah, it goes the tension in our next set. Yeah, 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 that's, that's 50% yeah. down, so we'll, we'll have to see. Um, so we are going to be continuing to drink this scotch for the next book, so we will not rate the scotch now, but we will rate this book. The Orchardist by Amanda Coplin. Ethan, what would you rate this book on a scale of buy, um, borrow, forget about it? Is there a secret fourth tier where I can rate it buy like five times? <laughs> I feel like we kind of do that anyway with a lot of our buy categories. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But like specifically my recommendation is buy a copy for yourself. Buy a copy for, like, the three people that you care the most about in the world, and then buy a copy for the person that you hate the most. Oh. Um, and specifically give it to them, and if you two, if the two of you haven't bonded over this book by the end of it, um, you, you are confirmed in the fact that you hate them. Unless it's you that doesn't like this book and then let's do, and then you're the evil twin, yep. I'm sorry. That's, but that, that's a good litmus test um yeah so yeah okay uh i'm also going to rate this by um because ethan as i said this i think was i'm fairly certain there might have been one in there but i'm fairly certain this was the last book i read before we started this podcast as soon as we started this podcast at the very next goodwill i went to i found another copy of this book and i bought it and it sat on my shelf until I mailed it to you. <laughs> Holy cow. I that just gave me the the like strongest like visual sense okay. 
of seeing two copies of The Orchidist sitting on your <laughs> shelf and wondering why the crap you had two copies of The Orchidist sitting <laughs> on your shelf. And it was so that one day like, I could I never... give one to you. That's amazing. Like, I never judged you for it. I was like, oh, you know, I don't know. He was part of a book club or he and Sarah mm-hmm. were something. Like, I don't know. I just dismissed it as something random like that. But, man, that's a that's a doozy of a thing to tell Patrick. <laughs> when I see him, I'll tell him. Um... <laughs> yeah, do that. Uh, yeah, so that's, um, that, that's, that's our rating. Buy it. Um, with that, Ethan, uh, the Bookscotch pairing, The Orchardist and the Glenrothes 12-year single malt scotch. Perfect match, pretty good match, slight mismatch, total mismatch. Go. I'm going to say perfect match, and as always in this category, I'm going to, like, risk, um, prematurely doing my actual scotch rating um but i feel like as scotches go there was a lot of there were a lot of real fruit notes to this Mm -hmm. scotch that like if and i'm just gonna you know like say what's on my mind here no matter how wild it is but like if you were um to make a scotch based like if you were an orchard keeper in scotland and you had an access to an or a fruit orchard and also peat mm-hmm. and had a scotch distillery like this is the scotch you would make which obviously like i can't say anything other than like perfect match for the scotch in this book. awesome i i agree perfect match um i i think it it not just the fruit, but the spice really is fantastic in this with connection to the book. Yeah. Uh, I think it's yeah. just it, it, it's exactly the sort of scotch that I could see drinking on Talmadge's porch in the orchard. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So that's, yeah, perfect match. Love it. Awesome. Um, so. We are, next time, gentle listener, going to be uh, talking about shotgun love songs. Uh, what's the author on that? I don't actually have. Nicholas Butler. Oh, I... Nicholas Butler. Yes, there thank you. Um, I had to lean back and look at my bookshelf where I see it over there. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, we're going to be... Maybe by the time we record... Yeah. Maybe by the time we record that one, I will uh, have access to my Oh, uh, there you go. No promises, though. No promises. That's okay. But yes, we will be uh, discussing Shotgun Love Songs by uh, Nicholas Butler. Uh, so, uh, read along, give us your feedback, go to the contact section of thetapestryradio.org, put Scotch Talk in the subject line, and send us your questions or comments. Uh, you can send us those as well, at Room with Scotch on Twitter, or you can just follow us there to keep updated with uh, new episodes and such. Uh, also on Facebook, you can request to join the Tapestry Radio Tap House, where we can have discussions about all of our tapestry shows if you request to join we'll let you in uh unless again you are a rapist um i don't think i said rapist last time but you know it goes without saying no you said human that's what i said there you go um yeah either way we won't let you in but everybody else fine um that's a wide net uh we'll also do your homework we don't promise to do your homework 
well, but we um, we have a, a firm stance on plagiarism. We are in favor, uh, strictly because it's funny. Um, so go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. That's the, the, the page for this show on the Tapestry Radio website. Scroll down a little bit. It's right there close to the top. Fill out that form uh, with, with your homework. We will do that homework and give it to you, and then you can turn that into your teacher and... Uh, please record on your phone your teacher's reaction to it and send that to us because we would like to laugh at it. Um, but uh, yes, if you like this podcast, check out our other shows on Tapestry Radio, uh, Intermission, our backstage drama podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the Fiasco RPG actual play podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. Um Go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever, rate and review us so that we can launch up and get more in people's sight so that they can listen to us too. Because if you're listening to us, that means you like us, right? And you want other people to like us. Unless you want us all to yourself. You want other people to like us <laughs> and say that say that thing you said again started with the word launch. Launch? I don't know. Launch us into people's sight? What did I say? That was that was it. Oh, that was okay. good enough. All right. Yeah. Do that. Do that. Rate us. So that Yes, please. We, we can have good ratings. It makes us feel good. Um we can have we can have good ones. Right. Ethan, plug yourself. Um <laughs> that seems fair after what I just said to you. Uh <laughs> I am at Bjartlett on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. I have a webcomic that I write and is uh, Pin Porter Girl Detective. I forgot it for a second. Uh, it, that's at pinportertetective.com. Um, it is a fairy tale noir detective story. Um, the, the art is pretty good. Uh, no, the art is very good. And also there are words that I wrote. Um yeah, that's me. Awesome. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Um, I'm not doing anything else Mugglilianthal. interesting. Mugglilianthal. Mugglilianthal. There we go. Or Mugglilianthal. <laughs> yeah, the, the German pronunciation. Right. Uh <laughs> So with that, until next time, gentle listener, just remember it's our party and we'll cry if we want to. You can't stop us. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.